Hey, everybody. Uh, we just finished recording this episode, which I really enjoyed. Uh, just two heads up uh, things. One, we decided after an intense debate to leave in some of the salty language in here. There are no F-bombs, but there are some uh, other curse words. We're going to have to get an E on this podcast, but we just figured to leave them in. And so viewer discretion is advised, or I should say listener discretion is advised. You won't see anything. Um, and also, uh, because of the nature of the technology, we had to do this, record this on Zoom. So there might be a little distortion every now and then, but we're hoping that the audio quality will be okay. Anyway, it was a fun one. Stick around to the end. It gets interesting. And um, thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to the dispatch.com to check out all of our fine wares. I'm very excited to have uh, today's guest on for multiple reasons. I would say, in some ways, he's the most requested guest we've had, um, particularly among a niche cult audience, uh, subcult audience of this podcast, because not only does he share many of my views about the dysfunction of Washington and of the Republican Party and the problems with disinformation and the threat that it poses to democracy, but he is the only other public figure I am aware of who has been falsely accused um, of being interested in Bigfoot erotica. Uh, as, 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 so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, former Congressman Denver Riggleman, welcome to the Remnant Podcast. Oh, I tell you, I am just honored to be here, and thanks for that sterling introduction. You know, that was <laughs> that was fantastic. So uh, we're going to talk a little. Just so you, uh, I'll explain why I've been accused of being into Bigfoot erotica later. But uh, I want to ask you a little bit about that stuff towards the end because I know that way the people who are only those purient, twisted people who are only interested in the Bigfoot erotica conversation will have to wait through the serious conversation. Um, and get to the end of it. And the people who aren't interested in that will just sign off before the last five or six minutes brilliant of our conversation. So, brilliant strategy. And utterly transparent with my listeners. I've just told you exactly why I'm doing this. But that doesn't so, exist much anymore, that type of transparency, I tell you. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's just, uh, for people who don't know who you are, why don't you tell people sort of your your basic background, why you ran for Congress, why you weren't reelected for Congress, um, why your name Denver, which is such an odd name. I mean, just take it wherever you want to take it. Sure. Yeah. Background, uh, oldest of eight. I got married when I was 19. So I've been married 31, 32 years now. Um, prior enlisted Air Force. Uh, actually, after being uh, married at 19, I didn't enter the Air Force till 22 at that point. Played a little college football. I was a two-time state powerlifting champion, did that kind of stuff. Actually, what that meant was I was unemployed and, and made sure that my wife had to work while I lived in her dad's basement. So um, my wife got pregnant in 92, so I figured I better do something. So I joined the military, joined the Air Force, and uh, 
So I was prior enlisted and uh, decided to get serious, Jonah, about life and uh, got two associate's degree. And this captain pulled me in his office one day, said, hey, we think you're barely smart enough to go to college. So um, if you pick anywhere in the country, we'll send you. And I got into UVA and um, I think I was number one out of my class ROTC for GPA out of UVA, which was pretty cool. And then I went into intelligence work. And buddy, that's what what happened was sort of crazy after that. My major was the former Yugoslavia. That's where I really concentrated on at UVA. And so in um, 99, I was on the Romanian-Serbian border for Operation Allied Force. And then um, after that, 2000, I was training Omanis on F-16 operations. And we mission planned the first bombing runs to Afghanistan in 9-11. I was with the B-1s, the 34th Expeditionary Bomb Squadron. And then Went into NSA special projects after that, Jonah, and um, did crazy stuff, Um, did counter IED work, um, did a lot of stuff with data, big data, and then started my own company in 2007, sold it in 2012. At that time, I had three daughters, Um, three daughters, still my lovely wife, and then um, was the CEO of the subsidiary for three years. Then in 2016, the Pentagon called me and uh, said, we want you to come back. I told him to pound sand. I was making whiskey in the woods, and that was much better than anything else I'd ever done. And they said, um, no, you have to come back. So I went back, and I was a senior consultant for electronic warfare and countermeasures at the Pentagon, concentrating on the uh, Asian theater um, up until 2018, when I accidentally became a congressman. Um, and uh, one, because I was sick of uh, really regulatory overreach and and the bullies that I thought were in government that were really trying to hurt people. And since I wasn't involved in politics, I was a little naive, Joan. I thought that maybe just with my sparkling personality and charisma, you know, I could, and will, I could, you know, do something. But what, what happened was I was a little bit too independent minded for a lot of people, even after that. And as you know, I got sideways pretty quick when, uh, when people thought I was funded by George Soros to change the sexual orientation of children after I officiated the same sex wedding back in the summer of 2019, when the conspiracy theory started about me. And, and I know we're going to talk about Bigfoot erotica at end, but you know, it's funny, buddy. I, uh, I won despite disinformation in 2018. And then um, in a church parking lot, awful conspiracy theories were used against me for a, for a very radical opponent. So it's been, it's been crazy. And during all that time, buddy, I, uh, I uh, found out that uh, Bigfoot believers were nuts and I wrote a book about it. You know, Bigfoot, it's complicated, which has done pretty well. So it's been and about disinformation, how it rules people's lives. So it's been a hell of a life, Joe. And I've, but as you noticed in my bio, there wasn't a whole lot of politics there until 2018. Yeah. So just quickly, the name Denver, is that a family name? Okay. Because it's a cool name. I'm I'm Denver Lee Riggleman III. It's very... Very, it's just very posh, right? And, um, you know, especially from being from Appalachia, Virginia and West Virginia, you know, Denver is sort of that name, man. And somebody asked me once, were you named after you were conceived or were after you were born? And I said, if I was named after I was where I was conceived, my name would be Dairy Queen. So there you go. <laughs> um, so I got to say, you know, it's it's somewhat unfair to people who have those these kinds of names, because like, like Lee, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald or... Uh, John Wilkes Booth. The reason why the uh, famous assassins have three names is because legally they name the f- they give the full name in part so like John Edgar Booth doesn't get you know pulled out of you know some bar and beaten up or whatever. But you do have like a classic like sci-fi not sci-fi thriller novel assassin's name. Uh, I mean Denver Lee Riggleman was spotted with his high-powered rifle trying to escape the scene. I just want to put it out there. 
I, I didn't. I, I need to write a book about that. I didn't know that. You know, <laughs> I never thought of it as an assassin's name, but it's sort of it, it sort of fits, man. It really does. Um. So you said. I mean, again, we're gonna. I, I swear, we're gonna hold off on the Bigfoot erotica stuff to the end. But you say that uh, you wrote a book about how people who believe in Bigfoot are nuts, and I know you're just being a little glib about it. Do you think that? Uh, do you think though that like? Because you've done a lot of work and you've looked really hard at the QAnon stuff, is is it that people are nuts who believe in it, or is that QAnon makes you a little nuts? I mean, what is the where is the causation and correlation in there? Yeah, that's, and that's a great question. And when I said that, really, what it comes down to, and in, in the Bigfoot book, I really talk about the difference between the possible and the probable, Jonah. I don't go into where I think they're insane or crazy, but I do believe this. Um, and when you say it creates something. Bigfoot believers, and there's four major different types of Bigfoot belief systems, right? And they, and some of them don't like each other. It's it's almost cult-like <laughs> in the way they believe, right? And then, you know, you have the QAnon side and the conspiracy theory side. Both of them are, cons- are, are sort of these, I would say, surreal belief systems based on maybe fantasy or based on, you know, something that's very hard to prove, right? Outside the realm of the provable initial. And you know, but then they sort of, um, I would say they they craft this narrative around that where they believe in something better than you do. They believe in something bigger than you can possibly imagine. And that gives them this good against evil sort of mentality. So I think it's really, uh, I don't know if it's a susceptibility or this this reason for saying, hey, you know, I know more than you. I, I am blessed. Therefore, my way of life or my way of thinking is more valid. And I think that's what I saw. And then what happens is that metastasizes, I think, some, somewhat. And, then you, you know, I don't think you're going to have Bigfoot guys and gals, you know, storming the Capitol, Jonah. Don't get me wrong, right? <laughs> I don't see violence from the Bigfoot crowd, right? You know, you know, screaming up through the Capitol because Bigfoot is hidden in the chambers underneath the Capitol. But you do see that these belief systems can completely encompass people's lives. And that's a scary thing. And once you weaponize fantasy, you get things like January 6th. So I don't think they're nuts. Um, but I do think that they're susceptible to that type of thinking. And I think it can spread rather quickly. And other people who might not be, if, if, if everybody around you in your echo chamber is saying that, it's possible you can become influenced. And those are the people we need to help or those we can drag back out of there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, in when I'm wearing a different hat, sort of, you know, intellectual history hat, some of the stuff that you describe actually sounds a lot like, um, sort of, uh, early Christian Gnosticism, which is this, you know, this tendency that you have hidden knowledge, you have secret knowledge, and therefore that makes you, that singles you out from the crowd and gives you a permission structure to do things that other people don't have because they haven't been anointed or singled out with this secret special knowledge. And it's they just haven't been brought into the fold. And, you know, that's so funny you said that, Jonah, because it's, um, I found that in the Bigfoot world is that if you had seen Bigfoot, you're automatically put on a pedestal and you have groupies, right, that follow you around. I mean, when Bob Gimlin walks into a Bigfoot crowd, you know, part of the Gimlin Patterson film, you know, people just flock to him like, you know, the Holy Prophet. Right. And it's really interesting to watch. And you see that on QAnon, too, you know, if you know, but it was a digital way of doing things, almost an anonymous um, mediator to the prophet. You know, that was that was putting out these secrets, right? Publishing these secrets that, you know, were almost revelatory or revelation style, you know, where you had to decode it. And that I think a part of it is the gamification of it, but it's it's a kink. 
right? And I think people get off on it a little bit, and I think they think that they're better than others. And I think a lot of it has to do with where they are, where they're at in life. And um, again, I think we we have a responsibility to pull them back, you know, from that type of like disinformation mainlining right until their frontal lobe that they're experiencing. So uh, I we'll put in the show notes. There was this New York Times little profile of you. It was it was good and. Um, you're quoted in there as talking about how like the disinformation misinformation stuff is getting worse, not better. And, um, if you had to, um, I'm sure you military guys, uh, have some version of prioritization or triaging of what the primary threat is, what the secondary threat is, what the tertiary threat is, where do you put, given the problems that the GOP has and our politics have today, where in the threat assessment does the QAnon stuff go for the GOP? Is it the biggest problem it's facing? Is it the third biggest? And you know, where, how do you how, how do you stack up the different problems going on there? Sure. So I mean, I, there's not a lot of people who talk primary, secondary, and tertiary threats is what I did for so long, right? Not only in the <laughs> kinetic dropping bombs, but the non-kinetic world. When you're looking at cyber attack or looking at critical nodes, all that stuff I've done for you know two decades and. Yeah, I, I think QAnon, I think it, the best way I can put it, and Jonah, and this, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that yet. Um, the best way that I can put it is that QAnon is a symptom of the primary threat to the GOP, uh, and that's the lack of policy ideas and almost this, um, people have used grievance, but it's almost this anger, this righteous anger, indignation that a way of life is going away without the evidence to really prove it. And I think QAnon is a symptom of that. But what happened with QAnon is that it was so sexy and so attractive because it was linked to a leader who they thought might have been ordained by God, almost messianic or apocalyptic, right? And so that that's the issue that you have is that, that QAnon and these conspiracy theories have been bubbling for years. I mean, man, 9-11 truthers. I remember getting back after 2001 and you got into the 2004s to 2008s and you had 9-11 truthers. I got to tell you, if I was in a bar, I would have fought them, right? And and I, I have that feeling now, but not in a physical way, but in a come on, you know, this is this is really not correct in any way. Look at it and consider your source. So I, I, I would believe in, in the cascading effects. I think QAnon is part of the primary issue, but I think it's it's under an umbrella of belief systems or lack of ideas or the fact that um, it seems that this this almost overwhelming social conservatism, evangelicalism, which, hell, you know, I was raised pretty religious, but I think you have to look at facts. And I don't believe, you know, I don't believe that we can solely rest, you know, a, a belief system on the supernatural. You have to have facts, you have to have policies, and you have to do those things going forward. And I think QAnon was just sexy because it was based on a belief system rather than really pure facts. So you were... Um... Uh, if I remember this right, you were briefly in the House Freedom Caucus. Is that right? Or I was. Yeah, yeah. I went to meetings. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's sort of like my my old friend, uh, uh, Judge Bork. Uh, he used to say when people said, "What was it um, like to have uh, Hillary Clinton as students in his classroom?" and he would say, "I no longer say they were my students. I say they were in the room while I was teaching." Um, so you, um, you were in the room with the house freedom caucus and, uh, you knew the hand, you knew the handshake for a while. Right. So, um, you came, so, but here's the thing I said, we just had on the dispatch podcast, we had Mick Mulvaney on 
who made the most spirited defense of all things House Freedom Caucus and and Trump that I have, I should say the most spirited, the most persuasive, which is not to say I was persuaded by it, defense of all of those things. And I, I think Mick Mulvaney is a charming guy. Um, and his his biggest, his, his most interesting explanation for why the House Freedom Caucus, which came in as a Tea Party bunch talking about lowering regulations, lowering taxes, all the stuff that's, you know, in my wheelhouse that I like, and ended up being the most vociferous supporters for Donald Trump in, in the Congress, was that, according to Mick, it's because that prior to being for limited government and prior to being for lower taxes, they were first, they were temperamentally anti-establishment. And so the anti-establishment thing trumped all of the ideological and policy considerations, which I personally do not for a moment consider to be a defense. I think that is a searing indictment that you'd rather have the pose of being a rebel than actually accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. Um, but you came into the House Freedom Caucus pretty late in that story of them turning into something else. What was your impression of them? And, um, you know, and, and, and where do you come down on, on what they became versus what they started as? You know, I find it interesting. You know, my, when I talk about me not being that involved in politics, I wasn't at all, especially when you're in intelligence work. You know, a lot of my work was behind the door and, you know, going off and doing crazy things. And, you know, I, um, I remember that I thought joining the Freedom Caucus was a, almost a liberty type of a decision where we would have this freewheeling discussion behind closed doors, right, about where we should go and things like that and, and how we actually um, should, um, I guess, shape policy. But I came in, what, it, just, just in 2018, and they were already firmly sort of ensconced in that they were there to, to protect President Trump. And in my first or second meeting, I, I sat in on a meeting, I'm not going to tell you the member who went through a conspiracy theory. Uh, that he was pretty sure it was real. And here I am, who had just come out of the intelligence business. You got to remember, I, and, and that's what people I don't think understand about me is I had just left the Pentagon doing some pretty deep-seated in, intel work on how data works, on how easy it is to parse or how hard it is to parse, how to manipulate data, talking about foreign threat systems. And I'm listening to this individual and I'm like, um, my first thought was, I don't know if maybe there's drug use in the Freedom Caucus. I wasn't quite <laughs> sure you know, if there was something happening. And I saw people nodding their heads. And, and I think, you know, one of the meetings, I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's exactly like that. And they're like, oh, no, it is. And, and, you know, and I'm like, okay, this, this is interesting to me. Now, it wasn't all of them, obviously. There's some great people in there. And I, and I love some of them. And, but um, it, 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 I knew pretty much in the first two to three months that that probably wasn't my exact space to be in. And a lot of it, in trying to become a Freedom Caucus member, is I really thought that it was sort of this debate society, this freewheeling debate society where, you know, liberty is, is, is a cool thing to talk about and what kind of policies can we do to advance the United States? What are our foreign policy considerations? It wasn't really like that at all. And uh, that's why, you know, coming straight out, you know, it only took me five days to be the nominee, John. I don't know if any of your listeners know that. I, I was asked to run in my distillery and five days later, I was the nominee. I mean, I spent zero dollars, made 37 phone calls and one by one vote. Right. And really pissed <laughs> off a lot of people. So that I sort of jumped in line from what they said. Um, so, again, I, I said, maybe I should go in the Freedom Caucus because it's a great thing to do. And it looks like that they care about the Constitution. But what I found out is that it wasn't quite what it was stacked up to be. So, yeah, you can say it's anti-establishment. 
You could say, you know, it's low taxes, things like that. But really what it came down to is the Freedom Caucus to be relevant. I think they needed to make sure that they supported Trump to get the clicks. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So it's funny. So one of the long running themes of this podcast is about why conspiracy theories that, let me put it this way. One of the, one of my abiding lessons, which I talk about a lot on here of being in DC for uh, going on three decades now is that um, the more, you know, how Washington actually works, the less plausible most, most conspiracy theories are Um, not because humans are innately good and not because people wouldn't be willing to do conspiracy theories, grand conspiracies. But I mean, as, as someone who spent most of their career in, in defense stuff, just the, the mere plausibility of nine 11 being an inside job falls apart. Once you realize how many people would have to keep their mouths shut, how difficult it would be to do how, you know, and, 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 and the, and the, so, and I've had Joe Uzinski, who's an expert on conspiracy theories on here, talk about this stuff a lot. And the, the thing that kind of, the, the thing that falsifies or, or rebuts my point a great deal, though, is the story you just told. Because most conspiracy theories about how Washington works are from people who know jack all about how Washington works. And so they see it like it's a movie and they think, okay, this character wants that. And they say, okay, cui bono or who benefits and, and, and then just connect dots that aren't there. Um, a congressman should actually know something about how Washington works. And I don't know what the conspiracy theory in particular is, but I've seen over the last four years, people who used to be really sane, like really normal salt of the earth types, people who were sources and people that I'd have drinks with who were congressmen or, you know, worked on the Hill or whatever, who now buy into really ornate, crazy theories of how Washington works, but also of how like the country is on the cusp of doom. And I just, I still ha don't have a great grasp of how that can happen to people. Um, do you have a, like a, a a, a grander unified field theory about how, because normally facts are the rebuttal to conspiracy theories, right? That's the antidote is just giving people the facts. The people who have facts these days, a lot of them buy into this stuff in ways that they shouldn't. And I, I can't quite get why that's happening. Well, I think there's a massive, I, and I'm going to get to the final one when you talk about what that theory is. I think the first thing, you know, what, 74.2 million people voted for Donald Trump, right? And, you know, so if you're looking across 50 states, that is a massive amount of people, right? And you're looking at, you can stay in a, in a certain area and be adored. There's an adoration factor here where, you know, you're, you're a thought leader, right? Uh, and you can say things and do things where, you know, people come up behind you and you have 2 million Twitter followers and look at all your Instagram followers and Facebook. And yeah, you're just going to get hit from the far left. If you're a far right guy, or if you're a center right guy, you know, you're going to get hit. Or if you're a center left person, you know, you're going to get hit. But the thing is, if you're a clickbait, you know, sort of congressperson, right. And you want that sort of that, that love and that, and that sort of, um, I guess, validation, you know, that you're doing a great thing. Why not go all in? Because you're going to, you're going to make a lot of money out of it. And that's where I'm going here, buddy, is that, I think everybody, and, and I would, I would, I would strongly encourage this: that when you see something that doesn't seem to make sense, just simply follow the money. And 
And that's, and that's something that I learned a lot in the Intel business is that you have individuals that have been radicalized or you have individuals that go seem to go off the deep end. But if you look behind the scenes, it's probably a money motive or a charismatic individual where they have some kind of goal or objective that gives them more money in the future. That usually is what indicates or it's an indicator of why that individual sort of went, you know, skewed another way, Jonah, right? That you didn't expect, right? Or said things that just doesn't make sense. My guess is there's some kind of money motive that's uh, that's playing in the background. It's it's a, it's a low level frequency pulse that they're responding to at all times. And I think it I think it's the money frequency pulse that you're responding to. And and listen, you can fall prey to it. I know that you know when I put out fundraising flyers, you know you want to put in language there that sparks people to give. And you know you might be pushing the edges of practically what happened, right? You're using hyperbolic words or, you know, the socialists are taking over America. Marxists are running your schools. You know, you use that stuff, right? Because people want to, you know, want to give because of that, because it's a, it's this, you know, good against evil, right? It's, it's, it's darkness against light, you know? And I think that's really what I'm saying is that the money motive since uh, Trump came into office has been really, I think, even expanded beyond where it was. It was always there. But when you're looking at the amount of grifters that have been sort of, uh, I think, attracted to certain portions of the Republican Party, I think you're looking at one massive grift that pushes a very crazy narrative um, to influence people into a direction they shouldn't be, and that whether to give money or, you know, to to do stupid things like January sixth. All right, so let's switch gears away from the conspiracy stuff for a second. Um, what was your your just overall impression of how Congress works generally. Another big theme of this podcast is how Congress is broken, how conservatives need to, you know, we spent 40 or 50 years convincing people, a lot of people at least, that the courts actually need to follow the Constitution and that that the Constitution, that, that originalist, however you define it, jurisprudence should really be what defines a conservative judge. Um, and now the next project needs to be to actually restore the role of Congress of what it was supposed to be, which is the place where political combat actually happens, where policies actually hashed out, where compromise is formed, and it's not doing that. And for me, the the dashboard saint or the symbol of this problem is Matt Gates. So I'm, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude going on and what's going on with Matt Gates. But um, what is what was your sense of how the place actually works or doesn't work, and and why? Well, I, you know, when I, when I went in there, you know, you look at, <clears throat> I think you talk about people looking from the inside, right. Or from the outside, trying to make sense or coming up with these theories. Remember I, that was my exact experience. I didn't know what to expect when I walked in the Congress. So my guess was my, <laughs> oh goodness, my, uh, my assumption, uh, my best assumption was that, you know, there was going to be some kind of intellectual, you know, um, I guess, banter. Uh, between bills, you know, in the committees, right, where you can try to shape something based on your expertise, it would roll up through the committee, right, to the rankers or to the committee chair, and somehow you would get that through that way. Well, that's that's absolutely hogwash. I mean, there's 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 times when that can happen, but the sausage making is really about where the committee chiefs want to go or the committee heads want to go. And as a backbencher, as a newbie or a freshman, even though I was on an A committee like financial services, I would sometimes be allowed to do a bill, right, to give it a shot, or given a bill that was orphaned from the last Congress because I was the one that could speak to it, or they wanted to make sure that every freshman got a bill or two into the committee pipeline so that they could, and I'm ready for this, I hope you're ready for this, uh, so they could campaign on it, 
<laughs> so, right. So when you're looking at the sausage making, you know, every single one of us, 435 individuals are also looking at what's best for the district. Um, but, and if you can't make that happen, uh, you're going to have a really tough time, you know, really, I think with your district, if you're not bringing anything, except there's notable exceptions, and that's the 50 R plus 18 districts in the country, or the, or the R plus 18 D districts, right, are going to be a DRR regardless, right? And you can go clickbait, you know, as much as you want. But what I found was that it really wasn't about policy. It's more about, it's more about honestly playing ball with the committees, ensuring that you're a big fundraiser, um, and making sure that you're playing the game with the conference. I mean, that's really how you get things done. And at times I was willing to do that. I was on the WIP team. I was on an A committee. I was on amazing working groups like the Artificial Intelligence Machine Learning Working Group because that was my background. So there were good things that got done. But for the most part, Congress is a committee-driven popularity contest where you get the scraps from Longshank's table right every now and then, you know, to get a bill through. And it was very frustrating. And then at the same time, if, if you are an independent thinker, you're fighting the conference and you're fighting your homegrown committees back, you know, back in, in your district. And it, it becomes a multi-flank war of you just trying to get policy through. But what it comes down to is that you're expected to do certain things. And that's to tote the party line with the hyperbole that they put out in, in their messaging that it comes from conference or comes from, you know, your, the, the emails you get from leadership. And so I, I was not very comfortable with any of that. I've, I've just never been that guy. And, and um, I think I have a very finely attenuated bullshit meter. And I think that's a bad thing to have. I, if it's a, it's a good thing to have, if you can capitalize on it. But I always felt incredibly uncomfortable with that, Jonah. I, I just felt uncomfortable with just towing the party line. And I think that's what got me in trouble, not only, you know, on the conference side, but I think it got me in a lot of trouble at the committee side of my local committees based on how Virginia politics works. So I'm sorry to disappoint people, but it isn't all love, light, lollipops and enlightenment in Congress. It's more like, making sausage out of lips and assholes, right? And that's really what it is. <laughs> so uh, the the part of the question I got is on that, is that, okay, so one of my hobby horses is how the parties are too weak. And um, they don't, and part of being weak means they're more like brands that care about this quarter's sales report rather than their long-term interests, never mind the country's long-term interests, never mind like what the best, policy is and all that kind of thing. And, um, and I, I think it was Ross Douthat who, you know, described the parties as two fully fueled jetliners sitting on the tarmac waiting to be hijacked. And that's sort of what we saw with Donald Trump, you know, it was like, he was never a Republican. He didn't know Jack all about what it means to be a Republican or be a conservative, but he was a celebrity and he had a huge Fox news audience. And that allowed him to basically so, you know, cut through the collective action problem of the primaries, get the nomination, and then you're off and running. So when you say that you had to follow the party line, I guess my question is, how much of that party line had to do with actual, what used to be considered serious party work, which is crafting the, you know, crafting the legislation that they want to get out and to get on the floor and to get, and to get passed. Um, and how much of it was how much of the party line was really the messaging that would play well on cable news or on talk radio and help with raising money? I mean, was the, was the party line, because I don't have a problem with the party line. I have a problem if you're using the party line for the wrong reasons, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Parties should be able to like impose some discipline on their members, but if they're only doing it to raise money and get clicks and that kind of thing, then I'd rather they not try at all. Does that make sense? 
It does make sense. And, you know, money is message, right? You've heard that a million times. And so the fundraising was very important, but it was the latter. What you were saying is sometimes the simple message was this, hey, Denver, we, you know, the party line is this, we don't want to, you don't want to piss off the big man because you won't get reelected, right? And that was a lot of the messaging that we had. That messaging was a top-down driven exercise, right? And there were some people who tried to kick back a little bit or push back, but I can give you one example um, on the ACA vote where, you know, I was against, you know, President Trump trying to overturn pre-existing conditions uh, protections, right, uh, through the legal means. And the reason was, is because the 5th District of Virginia, uh, federally funded community health centers, I think seven out of the 17 are in my district. That's how poor the Southern Port part of my district was. There's a lot of Republicans there that rely on not only Medicaid expansion, but also pre-existing conditions protections and the federal funding of those health clinics. And I was, and I remember I was talking to individuals and, and I had just been, you know, I'd been all over the district trying to figure out the healthcare issues that were going on. As you know, that's a big issue. And and it was like, well, we're just going to do this. And I said, well, I can't vote for that. I, I'm not, I can't support that because if I do that, that's, be, that's pretty hypocritical on what my district actually needs right now. And I don't know if that's exactly a Republican ideal at this point. I think we're, maybe we should have a solution first. And that's where I got in trouble. Um, I'm like, if we're going to do these things, what is our solution as a conference, right? What is our solution? And and, and I was also a member of the Republican Study Committee, and I remember we, we came out, I thought, with a pretty good solution to the healthcare issues, and, and really a lot of thoughtful things that were in that study. And I'm like, why don't we, you know, why don't we have a resolution on trying to fix the problems of this? But, you know, it was like, I was like screaming into a popcorn box, man. I was a brand new freshman congressman that didn't have the political lineage of other people and came from the outside for real. Um, and... Um, I felt like I was sort of screaming into into the into the void, but I still voted the way I thought so. And that was a big only eight Republicans voted that way. I was one of them. And the issue that I had after that is I did have an individual and I love him. But he did say, he goes, listen, you're done. You know, if you if you vote against President Trump, regardless, you know, that's it's going to be a problem for you. And um, that was a really interesting conversation that I had. And like you said, it seemed like most of the messaging to me was about fundraising and making money. I get it, right? They said that money is message and, and winners make history. That was their that was their big, you know, statement that I was always told. Denver, yeah, you got to have integrity, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do to win because winners make history. And if you're a loser, you're a loser. And I just, um, I didn't buy into that. I thought that integrity was something that I had to have. And and I made the decisions based on that and, and I lost. Um, well, Whatever that was, it happened in the church parking lot. But um, yeah, yeah so you, you you keep mentioning the church parking lot. Uh, what, for the benefit of listeners, why don't you just sort of explain what that is? Because it, it sounds so ominous, it might feed even more conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> it probably does, you know. Um, church parking lot. So my my convention, the way that I was primaried was a convention with twenty five hundred people in a church next to my opponent's house. Uh, in a district bigger than New Jersey, right, where some people had to drive five to six hours round trip and wait two hours in line to put a ballot in a box covered in tape. Um, that was how they chose um, my successor uh, because they couldn't beat me in a primary. So they knew they had to do something. So just simply, you know, it was a bunch of payoffs for the committee members to manipulate the convention and they had it at a church. And uh, it was it was one of the most anti-American things I've ever seen. and. But that's 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 what happens sometimes. I think you got to be careful, and that the small power bases and these committees and, and the Republican parties and you've seen how they act, they can really influence things. And, and if they can influence how you're nominated, like Virginia, which is the Wild West, 
you know, they can just simply say one person can choose or just the committee of uh, 37 people can choose. They're, it, they're an LLC. They're not really run by federal state, any type of federal state election law. So they can run it how they want. And that's the issue that you have with the parties. Joni, you said something where the parties are necessarily weak, right? And, and things like that. But the issue is they're not because they're a business. And if you have two parties that are tribal and they can dictate what happens on each side just based on money uh, or based on manipulating the process for their favorite sons and daughters, you have a real issue. And you have to make a decision. Do I want to play in that system, which I could have as an intelligence officer? I knew what I had to do, buddy. All I had to do was make sure that I promised money to the committee members and to the committee and didn't do a gay wedding and made sure I voted the way they wanted me to vote every time. And I would be the congressman right now. Well, when I said to pack a lunch, they understood pretty quickly that I wasn't part of that. And um, I just didn't want to do that. And, and to be honest, I'm much happier outside of Congress. It, you know, I did two years. Would I serve again? Maybe. But, you know, Congress at the legislative level just wasn't my cup of tea. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I just continually wanted to fight every day. I, I think it probably took a couple of years off my life, man. I, you talk about, you know, feelings of incredible fury every day and frustration. And what am I doing here? What is going on here? And trying to figure it out and then finally figuring it out and saying, you know what? I don't know if I even want to play this way. And that is a really hard thing to live with because you wonder, you know, should I have made more allowances in order to win so we don't have a crazy person in my seat now, right? Or should I have done what I have done because I can I can sleep a little better at night? It's a, it's an awful it's an awful thing to get in with a two party system because if you're going to stay in, you've got to make some allowances or you've got to be part of a fringe group and go completely one side or the other to stay in your district and get get reelected. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I appreciate all that. I really do. I I would push back a little bit about. The parties not being weak. I think the parties, the last place where the parties have any, it's not even the party. It's, it, it's sort of the base, this, this part of it, you know, the base that has outsides control over the primary process, particularly if the primary is sort of rigged as you described it. Um, and that's part of the problem that we have with Congress is that most, because of all sorts of things, polarization, the big sort, uh, gerrymandering, most people who go to Congress are far more, they all want to get reelected, but they're far more, but they know if they can, if they can get the nomination, they'll get reelected. It used That's to be right. that you pandered to the base a little bit to get the nomination and then you move quickly to the center because that's how you won. And now the, because of the polarization of these things, no one feels the need to move to the center anymore on the left or, or, or on the right, because these are all safe districts and that's that. And so all of a sudden the, the primary process is one of the last places to inflict, be able to inflict any discipline or pain on people. And I would much rather that the, 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 the marginal decisive voter in this country be in the center than on the fringe on the left or the right. Cause I just think you get healthier politics that way, but that's not sort of where we are. Well, it's not in, and I get it. I understand where you're, you're coming from, Joan. I think, um, oh, goodness. I, I think maybe we're looking at it from the exact same perspective. Maybe it's weak and strong. I just know that if you're right, if you're in an R plus 27 district, you don't have to run to the center, right? I mean, that's just, you, you don't have to do that. And if you're in a D plus 30 district or, or 35 district, you don't, you don't have to run to the center. I mean, you can, you can say anything you damn well please. And 
you know, that's why I think, by God, if we had an open primary system or we had some way to do it a little bit better when it comes to, you know, drawing the district lines, obviously that would be helpful, I think, to, to bring out a more moderate, you know, sort of voting block. But you, you're right, Joan. I mean, the, the thing is, is that what a small percentage of people actually choose the candidate because it's the primary or convention process that identifies the individual. And you have to be in some of these districts, I would, I would humbly submit that you have to be batshit crazy to win. Um, and you, right. And you have to go to that, you have to go to that sort of, that sort of level. And, and I just don't know if I have the, I don't know if I have the will to do that. I, I just, I just can't. Um, you mentioned your district. So like, I, I, you know, I live in DC, but I, uh, I'm just, I'm just across the river from, from Virginia. My mom, my mom likes to say that she was from Alexandria when Alexandria was the South. Um, and, um, uh, but your district, I didn't realize it was as big as New Jersey. Um, it's funny cause it's, I was looking at it. It's what, about 67% rural, but it's also got Charlottesville in it, which is, you know, a real Island of blue and a red sea there. Right. Um, how are you, I mean, like, how is that, do you like, just, uh, there's a generic question I'm about, you know, politics as a Republican running, do you like go to Charlottesville to get money out of it and then go to the rest of the district to get votes? I mean, how does, wh- how does that work? <laughs> what a great question, man. I, you know, it's, um, you know, I was really proud. I think I got 14 or 18% of the vote in Charlottesville, Jonas. So I think you should really slap back for that. Right. That's pretty That's incredible. Yeah. Uh, it's huge. And um, and I think a lot of it, though, had to do with there are so Charlottesville is very, you know, Charlottesville surrounded by Albemarle County. Right. So Charlottesville, you only get 14, 18 percent. But what you're going for is the 35 to 40 percent outside that in Albemarle County, which sort of surrounds Charlottesville. That's the biggest area, Charlottesville and Albemarle. And um, so what you do is you have you do have big fun, you know, do- donors in that area uh, in Charlottesville. But, you know, I talked to one, what an incredible human being. He, he votes Republican, but he's very centrist. And he goes, Denver, you got to win. This was 2018. He goes, because we just can't have crazy in there. And he was referring to my opponent at the time. He goes, but I can't see you going crazy either, but you're not going to get my support. And if we keep running on social issues, I can't support you anymore. So you're looking at Charlottesville, Albemarle Republicans, the ones that are sort of left, buddy, they, they tend to, to skew more towards the center, if that makes sense, you know. A little bit because they understand the the realities of the situation. Charlottesville, Falkier is the northern portion of my district up near Warrington. That's more of there's defense defense contractors and stuff like that. And you start that slowly getting more blue, right? As 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 DC moves down from you know through Prince William down into Falkier. Now you go south of Charlottesville. You got the corridor. You got Madison, Greene County, very red. Um, and then Charlottesville. You go south of Charlottesville. You have a completely different electorate. Um, now you're talking about an electorate that is, is very far right. I would say if you go down into, remember there's 21 counties in my district with two cities, Charlottesville and Danville, and there's no two different cities in Charlottesville and Danville. Trust me guys. Right. So, so that's the issue that I have is I have to somehow, you know, if you're going to be a a congressman in a district, that's R plus six, but South of Charlottesville, it's probably R plus 20, right? You, it is very difficult. And if you're you, 
a general election, I would have won this year, probably by 10 to 15 points in a general. Um, I had a really high favorability rate among Republicans and Democrats. The issue that I had, and I think you've alluded to this, and that's where you're going, um, is that if you if you center a convention in the three most Republican counties, that some are R plus 30, like Campbell, Franklin, and Bedford in Virginia, if you center an election there, um, you have to be an R plus 30 guy, and I'm not. That It's just that's it's not that. And, and I think that was the issue that I had that I didn't want to go there, but it really is. You, you do try to, and I was a really good fundraiser. You try to get a lot of your fundraising from North of Charlottesville. You do have some fundraising you can get in Southside with, uh, with small dollar donations, but most of it is Charlottesville uh, and North. And then you're also looking at outside donations, you know, uh, the communities that helped me out, the PACs and things like that. You got to, you got to sort of cobble together this bizarre alliance of fundraising to, to get through in the fifth, because it is over 10,000 square miles. So uh, the New York Times write up about you said that there's chatter about you running for governor. I don't I, I just listeners are going to I just feel like as a matter of due diligence, I should ask you, are you running for governor? I mean, I, I, no, I mean, I that I, I just want to remind the listeners to that New York Times interview, I think, was six to eight weeks ago. Um, if you saw the snow on the ground and the pictures, guys. So <laughs> and really at the time, I was absolutely considering running for governor. Um, and, and it was based on the candidates that I've seen. And even now, I'm pretty disgusted, you know, by this this manipulation of the convention process. It just should have been a primary for, you know, the Democrats figured it out in Virginia. I mean, that's why they've won for 12 years. Um, if I were to run, though, what I told somebody last night is I would need to have an amazing coalition of people who are willing to donate to a cause that could be lost, which is an independent, right, running at this time where, where it is so tribal. Now, on the other hand, um, I, I am a center-right guy. I think people realize that. I have a, I have a conservative voting record. And uh, so it's a really interesting thing for me is that on the social issues, I'm libertarian. Um, but on fiscal issues, I'm incredibly fiscal. I mean, uh, uh, incredibly conservative. So, you know, it's just an interesting dilemma for me. I like to tell the truth and facts to people. And but running for an independent governor run right now would take, I don't know, anywhere between 20 and 40 million. Uh, 60 million dollars was spent in the Virginia race, Jonah, in 2016, I believe, total. Um, so you're talking about now what is McAuliffe going to raise? 40, 35, 40 million. Right. So you're going to have to raise a lot of money to, to overcome that type of, of messaging power and money. Uh, that's going to flow into Northern Virginia because the, the whole the whole election is Northern Virginia, buddy. And so that's where I would have to concentrate my money. And right now, I don't know if it's really plausible. I don't know if I've prepared the battle space enough to have an effective run. But if if somebody were to come off the top rope and there's a group that really wants me to run and there's I've, I've had a lot of phone calls and I think it's plausible, I would give it a shot. But right now, it just seems like if you're looking at it analytically, you said courses of action or the primary, secondary and tertiary effects of this is that it could be just me, you know, sort of. Uh, I don't know, spitting in the wind if I did it right now. Okay, so I just want for the record, if starting later this week and into next week, your phone starts ringing off the hook, checks start raining down on you from uh, from patriotic fat cats trying to save the, the country, the remnant gets full credit. This podcast gets full credit for the Riggleman governorship um to come i just i just want that to be clear you got it oh wow okay that's excellent i love it i love it all right so uh before we get to one last thing before we get to the bigfoot thing i want to talk slightly about one of my favorite almost to a fault subjects which is brown liquor um you run a distillery what tell me about like what are your 
you know, what's, what's, what's your bill of fare? What are you, what are you putting out there? Well, you know, uh, my wife is a master distiller and my daughter is the other one. Um, so we have the, I think the only mother daughter master distilling team in the country. And, uh, so we started with vodka and gin and clears because we didn't want to source whiskey, right? We wanted to make our, so it's been insane. We now have a, a single barrel bourbon. That's just incredible. Uh, our rye whiskey, we sold out, um, we, because we do our own stocks. We have a honey rye whiskey. That's just going a lot of our rye whiskey. We're pouring into our honey rye because we can't keep it on the shelves. So we do have distilleries in, in Virginia and Pennsylvania, uh, one in Afton, Virginia, outside of Shawsville, the other ones in the Poconos, but buddy, we're, we are trying to make the best brown liquor on earth. And uh, so we get all of our grains from Virginia and Pennsylvania. We use continuous distillation columns. So we make very clean liquor. We use the best barrels from ISC, Independent Safe Company out of Missouri and Kentucky, Kelvin, uh, but also Barrel Mill out of Minnesota. Um, we just have an amazing process. 50 acres on the Rockfish River, uh, Rockfish, um, on the Rockfish in, uh, in Afton, Virginia. And buddy, it's the life of Riley, man. I, I got to tell you, it's, it's unbelievable to have, uh, we really are a women run company. Uh, I'm just the pretty face, man. I'm just the, <laughs> you know, you know, I'm the guy they put on the magazine covers because of my, you know, sterling good looks, you know, but, but yeah, we, we make some incredible whiskey. I, I don't, I don't know if you realize this because you clearly love your wife and your daughter, but saying in this context that you're the pretty face is going to get Listen you to into you. some tr- <laughs> trouble. <laughs> yeah, in trouble. And, <laughs> that's probably a good point. Even though I say it as a joke, it probably is a really bad one. I think um, you're right. I, I just want to put it, I, it's a little word to the wise. So. Maybe I'll put that line. I think that's something. That, thank you, man. I need you more. I, I need your help on this stuff, obviously. <laughs> yeah, this I, is, could be, was, I could be your comms director. Okay, so um, uh, one last question. So I'm, I'm really glad you said that you started making started out making gin and vodka because short story here. I, I think I told this before I once sat with this. I once did a talk for a bunch of young entrepreneurs out of Atlanta uh, for the American enterprise Institute. I went down there and I sat next to this guy uh, at dinner who was saying how he was, uh, you know, he had a, like a private equity day job kind of thing, but he really wanted to be a distiller and he was with some partners setting up a distillery. And I was like, well, you know, so how's it, how's that going? And he says, well, right now we're just selling white whiskey. And I was like, no offense, but like, I, I, I have a, I'm a drinker. I like whiskeys, particularly, you know, Scotch and Irish, but I'm, I'm, I'm learning, you know, to love my, the more patriotic American stuff, never heard of white whiskey. And, um, and it took forever to get him to admit that basically he was just selling vodka, right? Because that's what you make at the beginning of the, when you were just making the booze and you don't have, you're not in the process yet where you can make your own, make it brown, right? You're just putting out clear alcohol, right? Is, is it's always stuck with me is this weird thing. Is white whiskey a thing? Is a term that you've used as a distiller? Is it does it mean anything to you? No, I mean uh, you know a lot of people use white whiskey. That's moonshine, or as you know, white dog, right? Uh, Alley whiskey. (laughs) So so really, it's just spirit. Um, It depends on you know what you want to call it. But white whiskey is just moonshine, or it's just uh, it's just white dog that comes off the still before you put it in the barrel. So um, that's all it is. But now. You can define whiskey as, as long as it touches the barrel. I guess you could run it through a barrel and just have it touch it a little bit and call it whiskey if you want to, you know, by definition. 
but we never use the term white whiskey because my wife would, she's a purist man. And uh, whiskey has got to be colored, right? And uh, it's got to have this beautiful hue to it. And um, cause we do a sour mash too, that we release every now and then as a sour mash corn whiskey that's aged. And um, I got to tell you, um, but yeah, I mean, again, I try not to, anybody can call it. There's no wrong way to drink whiskey. I tell people because I have everybody all the time. You can drink whiskey any way you want. And if you want to call something white whiskey, call it white whiskey. It's just not our bag because, you know, I, I think whiskey should have some color to it. Should have touched the barrel. Right. And, uh, you know, should, uh, should have a little bit of that smooth wood flavor, you know, that comes through or those tannins and esters that, you know, do that transfer into that white whiskey so-called. So that's yeah. just how I roll. I like, um, so I'm a single malt guy and also I like Irish whiskey, but I like the single malts and I like the sweeter finish ones. Cause like, like Lagavulin and those things, they taste like you made tea out of your lawnmower bag to me. Um, <laughs> and, I, I'm uh, a big Lagavulin fan too. It is, it really is a matter of taste. That is true. Um, so I like the, like the Glen Morangi and the Balvini and, and, and that stuff. But, um, I keep getting people telling me I should try rye. So the fact that you make a honey rye tells me maybe that's, that's what I'll give it a, a shot at at some point. I'll, but, I'll get you. And we, we make a very good single barrel rye too. So, um, I would love to give that a shot with you, so to speak. So to speak. Yeah. We, we, we shouldn't do it as shooters, but at some point we'll have a drink. That would be great. I don't know if you smoke cigars, but we can. I do. But, two of my great passions together sometime. All right. So let's, let's, now that we've dispensed with like the trivial stuff, like the future of democracy and conspiracy theories and all that stuff. Um, let's talk about Bigfoot for a second. So, um, uh, just so you know where I'm coming from, like on the fourth, sixth episode of this podcast, a couple of years ago, I had Andy Ferguson, longtime writer for the weekly standard, good friend of mine. And we were just chatting having a conversation and I was saying how people don't understand how this is a big country and people have lots of different interests. And I said, you know, if you don't believe me, go search for Bigfoot erotica on Amazon and you'll be amazed at how much you see. And this has been turned into this thing where I like, I am a Bigfoot erotica aficionado. And, um, and, and I, I always want to point out to people, a, that's not true, but B there's a difference between erotica and, and porn, right? It's sort of like, um, it's, there's the old, there's the old joke, which I swear my mom is the first one to tell me this joke. What's the difference between erotic and kinky? Uh, erotic is when you use the feather. Kinky is when you use the whole chicken. Um, <laughs> and something similar going on with the porn thing too. Anyway, uh, how did you get associated with Bigfoot and, and, and what led you to lean into it? Cause this is the thing I really admire is that you owned it and you wrote a, when people were saying you're into the stuff, you said, no, I'm not, but I'm going to write a book about it, which I just think is the right response is just lean into that and make it yours. So how did you get tagged with this? And, 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 and actually tell me what the actual argument of the book is. Oh, sure. Yeah. And by the way, I think the, the word that, uh, me and my, I remember the night before he said, Denver, you're about to go worldwide on Twitter with this Bigfoot erotica stuff. And I said, that's bullshit. There's no way. Right. I, I said, everybody can tell it's a joke and they it, it can tell it was for my birthday. And it was a, you know, it was such a simple explanation and so ridiculous. But the thing is, I had scared my Democratic opponent because I was had so much momentum and they thought they had to hit me. So it actually a lot of people do this stuff out of fear or just really bad decision making. So what happened was that there was a couple of pictures I put on Instagram for my birthday. One was my head on a Bigfoot with a censored out huge phallic area. Uh, the other one, that was my army 
uh, friend. She was she's an officer, and I wouldn't sell her out. I wouldn't sell out the other ten people who signed it either, right? <laughs> and added to the artwork. Um, and then we had a uh, my my um, my do- uh, it was a it was a friend of the family. I'll say that. I wrote a I saw that picture and goes, oh, I can do better than that. And I'm like, that is fantastic, right? And it was Bigfoot coming out of the clouds, you know, with a big, you know, censored uh-huh. phallic. For my brain, I'm like, this, these are brilliant artwork, right? What what originality? I gotta put these on because I'm I'm writing a book about disbelief and or about belief systems for Bigfoot and, and how that can actually control people's lives. This is perfect. And and I'll and I'll say I'll call it the mating habits of Bigfoot and why women want them. That's pretty funny, you know. <laughs> I'll just make it joke. That was it. That that's the whole story. But uh, when she tweeted out those pictures and said I was into Bigfoot erotica, her daughter was Olivia Wilde. So, right, who was dating, I think, Jason Sudeikis at the time. So, dude, it went viral. I mean, you're talking worldwide, number one on Twitter. Um, if you look up Google Images now for Bigfoot erotica, I'm there. Uh, you know, don't, you know, I'm number one, brother. So, um, so you had Congrats. that. Congrats. Thank you, I think. <laughs> But the issue was what was so freaking ironic on all this is that my whole life has been trying to stop radicalization from counterterrorism, right? Use disinformation sources, right? And here I am in 2018, a dude who's never run for federal office, and I'm getting tagged as a Bigfoot erotica loving Nazi. And I'm thinking a guy who fought against ethnic cleansing, right, in Operation Allied Force. A guy who's had an incredibly diverse work set, all these incredible things I thought I'd done in life was sort of winnowed down to a tweet that was copy pasted by millions of people. And I was absolutely hammered on Saturday Night Live for something that was a complete lie, period, dot, complete disinformation. And so what a way, you know what? I'm going to hug that cactus, brother. (laughs) I'm going to tell people, you know what? You know what? We shouldn't alienate Bigfoot voters. Why are we alienating the Bigfoot majority? Why is she kink shaming people? That's, you know, I thought you, I thought the left embraced all these different things, you speciest, right? So you can, you, you know, and it worked because the thing is, is they, people know, I, I just could tell you the truth. And if the fact is I was writing a book about Bigfoot. It was about belief systems. There are people who go to Bigfoot expeditions just to tent swap. That is what they do. These are big pickup parties. That is what happens. And, um, and there are people that are so bought into this, to this belief systems. And I'm not talking about Bigfoot as an ape man. I'm talking about Bigfoot as an interdimensional long jumper that can give you prophecies, which some <laughs> people believe, right? This stuff is real. And so I wanted people to not only understand how disinformation works, but it can be anything from Bigfoot to sadly QAnon or to that, that awful thing that happened in Nashville with a guy who blew up a city block because he believed in reptilian humanoids. I mean, that's, that's where we're at, Jonah. And, and, and it is, it's a cautionary tale. It's funny. It's crazy. But holy shit, man. You know, are we really going to believe that NSA manipulated votes? Are we really going to believe that Dominion, you know, in 50 different states is somehow was able to pay off hundreds of thousands of people like you mentioned at 9-11, right? But the truth is that's, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's, 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 it's absurd. But people believe it. And that's why the Bigfoot thing was so awful, too, is because I have had the far left and the far right call me pedophiles because of Bigfoot erotic and because I'm against QAnon. I've been funded by George Soros or I'm funded by the Bigfoot porn industry, right? So that's the issue that I have. And that's why I have to get out there and tell people, listen, Twitter is not, is, 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 can be good, but for the most part, Twitter, Instagram, any of the social media channels, 
can put out any disinformation you want. Consider the source. And if it sounds stupid, it probably is. Yeah. So, I mean, again, this gets back to the point I was trying to make before about how normally, and I, I take your point about the, as you, I think you called it the money pulse explains a lot of it. I think for some like Rudy Giuliani, I think that's probably a big part of it, but you know, but Rudy Giuliani used to be a very serious person and he's, you know, three, uh, two months ago, he was saying that he was surprised and learned that most votes are counted overseas. It's like, they're not counted. Like there's literally a video showing them counting. And he's talking about how they're like really counted in like, I don't know, Czech Republic or Venezuela or something. It was bizarre. And well, I think money explains, probably explains a good chunk of it. There has to be something else too going on. And, um, I remember in 2015, 2016, talking to some friends who I won't name, um, as we saw one by one, some of the more esteemed guys on the right, just sort of a switch flips in their head and they become crazy pro Trumpers. And I, I offered one theory, which was that it was mostly people about 20 years older than you and I were almost the same age. It was like, this was their last rodeo and they wanted to be relevant and they wanted to get back in one more time. and. Um, and I also think when you're at that age, you're more likely to believe the catastrophization stuff, that this is the end of the world. And if we lose this election, everything's over. Um, and a friend of mine said, you know, that's plausible, but I think there's also another interesting indicator, which is that the, the more ex wives you have, the more likely you were to be voting for Trump among these like elite conservative types, which would make sense. You have to be a certain age to accrue enough ex-wives to have a lot and of ex-wives. Have, that's, right? a, yeah, that's a function of time. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just sort of fascinating to me that, that, I mean, like Rudy, Rudy, Giuliani, like the money thing probably explains Sidney Powell, but something else explains someone like Rudy Giuliani. And cause he was or already Lynn rich. Wood. Yeah. Or Lynn Wood. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's really disturbing to me because you like to think that the elite members of society are going to fulfill their obligations to behave like elites rather than just pander to the lowest common denominator. But let's get back to the important stuff about the Bigfoot thing. Um, you said, which I, I think is fascinating. I got to pick up your book. Um, that there, are, I think you said there are four main groups of Bigfoot adherents and that some of them hate each other, which I, I love this kind of thing. Um, Freud called it the narcissism of small differences. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, the Monty Python is sort of dispositive on this is, you know, the Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea. Um, there's a fantastic This American Life segment about the fight between the two different Santa organizations um, and how that could almost turned to a brawl. So I love these kind of really small, you know, the, the, the knives are so big because the stakes are so small kind of fights. Um, uh, tell me about the four different factions and what are the fault lines that divide you in the world of Bigfoot belief? Well, the first are what I call the BEs or the biological entity members. And they believe that, you know, Bigfoot is descendant or missing link from Gigantopithecus blackie or Homo erectus, right? Things like that. And, you know, that's really, you know, individuals looking for an ape. Now, when I talk about the four belief systems, as you probably can guess, there are sub belief systems under that, like the kill or no kill groups. And I can't, if I went into every single sub factor on this book, it'd have been a thousand page book, you know, on every single thing about Bigfoot, encyclopedic Bigfoot belief systems. I feel like the Joseph Campbell of Bigfoot beliefs, you know, and so, um, so you have that. And then you, the second, so the BEs, you know, they, they might believe in infrasound, right? They might believe that 
that um, the biological entity believers, they might believe that Bigfoot can throw out psychic terror at you, by the way, Jonah, you know, in the woods, when you, when you get the heebie-jeebies, that's Bigfoot giving you a psychic blast of his mental power, right? Or he throws rocks or, you know, the differences in types of vocalizations or what their territorial grunts and screams might be. Or, you know, even if it has gluten allergies, I had a massive argument about somebody who said we couldn't bake Bigfoot with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So <laughs> you have that, right? So those are the BEs. The second one is the interstellar believers that, you know, Bigfoot has been dropped off here, you know, by the, you know, by the Zetas or by the, or by the Greys, um, and that he is here sort of an environmentalist, a protector of ours, you know, or that somehow he's, he's sort of a scout, right, that comes out to, to take a look around for the, for the little dudes, right? And, and by the way, he can be phased up or down at any point. So now I'm going to start to transition, Jonah, into why we can't catch Bigfoot. And this is when you're getting into you know, the, the ideas about Bigfoot cannot be captured based on the fact that he, he's an energy being. So, yeah, the BEs, and the reason you can't catch him, obviously, is because he's so surreptitious and evolved over millions of years, even though he is attracted to nursery rhymes that's in the book. Um, the second <laughs> thing is the interstellar believers, which uh, believe that Bigfoot is a hitchhiker, right, or some kind of scout, or some kind of environmentalist from the stars. The third one's really interesting. It's almost a morphing of that, which is the Native American mythology of the Oma, the Stick Manor, all the different, you know, um, I, you know, I would say belief systems that come with the, the Native American system of there's a big hairy man in the woods. And part of that system, Jonah, is that he can take your soul. So now you're getting to some really scary shit, right? That now, you know, you got Bigfoot, the BEs who believe, you know, maybe he could drag you into the woods. The interstellar guys believe UFO is, sort. you know, the UFO guys believe Bigfoot's probably more or less a big, harmless, stinky, you know, traveler from the stars. But the, the Native American mythology can get pretty dangerous that he can take you, right? With his eyes, he can take your soul. And that's pretty scary stuff. And then you get to the fourth one, the big one. And that's the Quaventalure. And the Quaventalure is an interdimensional jumping Bigfoot that can give you prophecies. Um, he's part of the over 260 million year war between the harmonic universes. And, and at times is here to protect us against the Dracos. Um, so we, we, we also have this this bizarre interdimensional long jumper that's here is as a protector of us from this war of otherworldly beings or 12 strand DNA beings that want to take over the earth as a place to live. Right. And, and he is here to help protect that. And that is a huge belief system that's based on the voyagers. Um, and I actually had a Marine Lieutenant Colonel uh, who tried to cleanse my house using uh, Bigfoot mysticism. Um, and I allowed him to come into my house and do that. So, um, those are the those are the four main belief systems: the BEs, the Interstellars, uh, the Magic Man, Native American mythology, and the Interstellar long or the um, interdimensional long jumper, the Quaventalure. So those are the four main systems of belief. And the issue that you have with those belief systems is if you believe that Bigfoot's from the stars, it's very difficult uh, to think that Bigfoot is actually, you know, um, just a just a monkey running around the woods. So. So you definitely have some real issues between the belief systems, even how they how they appear and disappear based on their energy being status, which it could be a real big argument. And how much is the first of all, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, uh, that would definitely go on the remnant highlight reel. But um, how much of the interstellar stuff can be traced back basically to Andre the Giant on the six million dollar man? Um, one of the best one of the best. You know, that's actually in my book. It's so funny. I, you know, the fact that you know that there is a newfound <laughs> respect that I now have, um, which you're talking about the $6 million man against Bigfoot, right? Um, incredible, 
incredible thing. And I think it can also be traced back to uh, sightings back in Pennsylvania in the 1970s. Uh, if people want to look that up and uh, which was really interesting, you know, where you have individuals shooting at these large creatures that couldn't be killed. That was that coincided with orbs and UFO sightings. But really what it comes down to is that it is all about the six million. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, did not know. I did not see you going there. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and I got I to say, I, I loved those episodes of the Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, that was my, you know, that was my grind was the Six Million Dollar Man. And, um, and I had a thing for the bionic woman. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I tell you, um, Lindsay was was incredible. She was amazing. Was it Lindsay Wagner? Was yeah, 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 yeah. Check so, that out. <laughs> so, since you're a technology guy, I'm just going to put it out there, and you can respond or just say, "Okay, this podcast is over." My big beef with the six million dollar man is that the physics of having just a bionic arm don't work. If you like lift up a car, I'm sure so your elbow will be fine. But the elect the bionic arm is just going to get pulled out of the socket, right? And because the weight transfers all the way up, there has to be a bionic spine, or like almost like the it, it almost has to be like Wolverine, right? right. You have to. Right. There had to be a lot more going on there. But of course, this was the seventies. They didn't understand, you know, <laughs> they didn't and Wolverine technology, Jonah. At that that's time, right. You know? That's right. And um, you know. And you got to say, Oscar Goldman probably was part of the deep state, but we don't need to get into all of that. Um, He's cute. He's cute. Um, so, uh, Denver Ruggerman, love to have you back. Clearly, we have a, a lot more to talk about. I mean, this is this is now obvious. <laughs> um, and um, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for all you're doing. And, and let us know if you actually end up running for governor. I will let you know, man. And thank you for the, your time. And I really appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Denver Riggleman has uh, has left, and uh, I got I think it's kind of clear. I enjoyed that one. Um, we could have talked for a while more about all sorts of things. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of politicians on here, and but we're going to have a few in the next couple of weeks. So, um, but normally, I you know, I'm I don't you know the the exceptions to the politicians rule generally are people who can talk as if they're not politicians. And I think clearly Denver Riggleman, uh, passed that test. And, uh, I really enjoy the guy. And, um, anyway, I, you know, I, I, I gotta get the, I gotta get the Bigfoot book and, and I have so many more questions, uh, to ask about the Bigfoot stuff. Um, and, you know, like particularly this kill versus no kill thing, which I meant to circle back on, we did, we had a debate between, uh, we had a conversation about this after we stopped recording, uh, because Nick Pompella took, uh, my research assistant took the position that, um, this had to do with Bigfoot, whether Bigfoot kills people who see him or doesn't. And I thought what Denver was saying was that this has to do with whether or not we should kill Bigfoot. I guess Nick's reading of it is better than mine, but, um, I just, I need to know more. And we didn't even get into Sasquatch or Wendigo, not Sasquatch, uh, Yetis or Wendigo. Um, so there's just, there's a lot of stuff to, to discuss here, but we'll have to save that for another time. Uh, thanks again for listening. Please. If you haven't yet subscribe, uh, to the dispatch, um, Oh, and I will have some choice responses uh, in the next G-File to some of the criticism of my Matt Gates column. 
Uh, so stay tuned for that. Maybe we'll talk about it on the solo remnant later this week. Um, suffice it to say, I think it's all BS. Um, actually I'm confident it's all BS. Uh, but that's just a tease to stick around for later. Um, and with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.